Turn with me then in your Bibles to Jeremiah 17, page 766, 766 in your pew Bible is where you find the prophet Jeremiah's 17th chapter. We're going to read the verses 1 through 13. Jeremiah 17, page 766. And let's ask the Lord for a blessing on the reading of His Word. So we pray. Gracious God and Father, open now our eyes to see our hearts, to believe the wonders of Your truth, the glories of Your grace. Speak a word to our hearts that we may leave this place renewed in our faith or giving ourselves to You in gratitude for salvation in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Then Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of God. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and the horns of their altars, with, or while their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout your, all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and, it is, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, and all, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. As far the reading of God's holy word, then to the catechism in Lord's Day 2. The Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2, will recite together the answers to these three questions. Lord's Day 2, beginning with this question, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. And what does the law of God require of us? 
Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. This the church does believe. It is easy, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ our Lord, to just recite these words of the Heidelberg Catechism because that's what we do. To let the words simply enter in through our eyes, get translated by our brains for vocal sounds that come out our mouths and never really be touched by them. Because think of what we just said especially in question answer five, can you live up to all this perfectly? The answer you gave, the answer that you spoke, that I spoke, that we all spoke, but let's make this personal for a moment. The answer that we personally gave, that we said was true of ourselves, is this. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I am inclined in this way. I tend this way by nature, by that nature that is given to me by my parents, that nature that is the natural gift to all of life. Every child born into this world is born as a human, born in the image of God, is given a nature that is unique and distinctive, different than other creatures, special and blessed, a very rich gift from God. That nature, it inclines, it leans, it goes in the direction of hating God and hating our neighbor. And maybe there would be some, certainly in our culture or in our society, maybe even in the church, quietly, obviously not saying it out loud, but in moments of maybe trial and tribulation, or just because we're, we're angry and we're suffering, we're experiencing pain, who would say, oh, I definitely hate God. Atheists sometimes have a tendency to speak in that way. They say things like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe He exists. And I hate Him. I hate the diseases. I hate the struggles. I hate the sorrows that that He allows to happen in this life. I hate God, they say. If the God that you profess is real and exists, then I hate Him. And sometimes in the church, too, people get very angry, get very disturbed at God. They, they shake their fist at Him. They hate Him. And so you might find people willing to say, oh yes, I definitely hate God, although probably not within the church, too quickly. Yet would you get people that say, I am naturally inclined, by nature, by my mere existence, by the fact that I'm a human being, I tend to hate my neighbor. That person that lives next to me. If you asked in the church, do you hate your neighbor? Of course, you would get 
a lot of no's. And then if you went to the world generally and you went out to the shopping malls, to wherever, to the restaurants and bars of our society and said, hey, do you hate your neighbor? Somebody might say, well, I hate this one guy. There's a guy that I really hate. But you say, are you inclined by nature to hate your neighbor? They would say, no, absolutely not. In general, I try to be nice. I try to be good to people. I try to be kind. I don't naturally want to hate my neighbor. That would not be a nice thing to say. That would not be a nice thing to have to admit. That would not be something we would want to acknowledge in public. And yet we all just did it. We all just said it. And not about other people, not about people outside the church community, not about unbelievers and those who don't know Jesus Christ. We said it about ourselves. We said it about our own hearts. I, we said, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Do you believe that? Did you believe that when you came to church this afternoon? Do you believe that now as you sit in the pew? Do you say, yes, yes, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor? Or are you more inclined to say, wait, no, 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 don't you see? I'm here, aren't I? I'm in church. I love God. And and I try to do nice by my neighbor. There are some that get under my nerves, but generally I try to do nice by my neighbor. Do we really believe what we genuinely confess, what we just said together. The difference between genuinely believing these words and just reciting them is the difference between genuine faith and cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is the kind of You just go to church because that's what you do. You say nice things because that's what you do. When you ask people, why do you do these things? Well, it's what we do. It's part of our community, part of our culture, part of our circumstance of life. But do you believe these things? Do you believe Jesus Christ? Do you believe His sacrifice on the cross for your sins? Because you say, I desperately need that grace. I am inclined by nature to hate God. And my neighbor. Well, the catechism helps us come to that conclusion. It comes helps us come to that confession. We're not inclined to do it. We don't really like to say it, but the catechism helps us. And it helps us by, by taking us by the hand and walking us through what God has provided for us, which is his law. That's the first question answer, isn't it? How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. And then it says, okay, let's let's use the the chalk line. Chalk line. I used to love if I went to work with my dad and he would lay sometimes a chalk line on a, on a roof and then I got to pull it as a young boy. I got to lift it up and let it snap back down and it would draw a straight line of chalk on the roof. A perfectly straight line that you could build with. Well, the law of God is that chalk line. It says this is dead straight. This is absolutely accurate. You want to know how you stand? You want to know how you stand in relation to God? Here's the law. Let's see. And what does the law say? It says to us that we are to love God and our neighbor. That's question answer four, which is a bit disturbing in many respects because we don't usually think of the law of God that way. The law is do this, don't do that, don't do this, do that. And the catechism says, no, 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 no. The law is love God and love your neighbor. It's a different thing. And when we work through those two things, we'll come to the right conclusion that in fact the problem we have is we're inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. So then first question, answer three. How do you come to know 
your sin and misery. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God teaches us. It's a simple truth. We learn our misery by the law's instruction, God's law, not just the Ten Commandments. All of every, every passage, every part of God's Word where, which says you must, you shall, or you shall not, you may not. There are in the New Testament lots of commands. There are other places in the Old Testament where there are commands. So we don't want to limit ourselves to the Ten Commandments, certainly, which is what we think of when we think of the law of God. But the broadest, in the broadest sense, the law of God, those instances where God says you have to or you may not, those moments are like a teacher in our classroom handing back to us our test with all sorts of red marks on it, telling us every place we got it wrong. Because that's what the law does in the first place. The law does other things. The law of God is used in a number of ways within our lives. But the first use of the law, we would say, is to say wrong. Wrong. That's wrong. Not that. That's wrong. That's what the law of God does. Is it tells us where we've fallen short, where we have failed in our acts. That's what the Word of God says. That's what the Word of God teaches concerning the law of God as well. Think about Paul's words in Romans in chapter 3 at verse 20. There the apostle, after having dealt with the failure of Jews and the failure of Greeks, he says, now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And he doesn't just say that about unbelievers, people that don't know Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 7, that very familiar passage, the good that I do, don't want to do, or the good that I want to do, I don't, and the evil that I don't want to do, that I do. Paul, who's speaking as a believer, as born-again Christian, this is a man who knows Jesus Christ and lives in the power of Jesus Christ. He says that the law made me aware of sin. The commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But I, says Paul, am a sinner. The law of God is like a laser. It's like a flashlight. It's like a mirror or whatever analogy you want to use. It shows us who we are in relation to God. Now, it's precisely for that reason that it seems to me that by nature we want nothing to do with the law of God. The truth is, after all, that everyone in all the earth, all of us and everybody, anybody every, anywhere, has some standard by which they judge their rightness or wrongness, their goodness or badness. I mean, first of all, everybody in the world knows they're not perfect, right? Every, there isn't a person alive, I don't think. Maybe in, in some sect within the church, within some Christian group that says, well, now we're perfect because of Jesus Christ. But most people, almost everybody in this world, acknowledges they're sinners. They might not use the word sin. They might say things like, I'm, I'm, I'm flawed, I'm, I'm weak, I make mistakes, I trip up, I stumble. They, they, they all acknowledge their sin. In fact, 
Our culture has a culture of sin about it, doesn't it? I mean, just consider the cancel culture. We talk in those terms, right? We know what that means. Cancel culture. What, what is our culture canceling? They're canceling sin. Not, not sin as we understand it. Not sin as the Word of God reveals it. But sin as the world determines it is. Those things that are the most egregious, the most violating of the spirit of our age. There are, you can do bad things in our day, but there are some bad things you can never do. You can say just about anything you want, but there are some things you can't say. You can't say anything against the LGBTQ community. You can't say anything against abortion. And you most certainly can't say anything against transgender. If you want to be canceled, if you're a celebrity figure, if you're a politician, if you're an academic, and you want to be fired, here's a good way to do it. Stand up and say, I don't believe in these things. I, in fact, believe these are sins. These are under the condemnation of God. That these things are wrong. That abortion is murder. And you'll find yourself very quickly canceled. Because our society believes in sin. Our society says there are terrible things that must be condemned. And they must be wiped out. They must be removed from the face of the earth. Which is just to say, again, everybody, everywhere, has some standard, some way of deciding what's right and what's wrong. But not everybody thinks about the standard they use. Not even in the church. Not even in the church do we always think, how am I comparing myself? How am I judging my we all judge ourselves how am i doing that if you're not thinking about that question then you're doing it in one of these ways you're doing it culturally that is we live in a society that has certain morals <coughs> excuse me certain attitudes certain teachings and and that society uh, says these are good these are bad And we're comparing ourselves to society. We're comparing ourselves. We're either better than our fellow men or we're worse than our fellow men. But we're judging ourselves by the people around us. I mean, just think in this way. uh, Is is the kind of food you eat sinful or or, or not sinful? Well, here you would say, well, no, the food we eat is acceptable because everybody eats this kind of food. We all eat you know, meat and potatoes or whatever the case may be. But if you are living in, in the context of a vegan or a vegetarian community, and you were to say, I'm going to have a nice steak tonight, your society would look down on you. You would feel the pressure of that. And because of that, you might well change your attitude. You might say, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm against now that sort of thing. That's wrong. I agree. I've come to learn that's wrong. Because the culture around you has impressed itself upon you and convinced you to judge yourself by its standard. And, and on a smaller scale, we do that within our own social groups, don't we? Not only in the context of our larger culture, but in the context of our friend groups or our economic class or, or our rural versus our urban communities. There is a difference in these things, isn't there? There's a different mentality or ethic amongst the rural folk than there is about the city folk. There is 
a different set of values amongst the ultra-rich and the very poor. There is a difference between um, athletes and nerds, between uh, the popular kids and the not popular kids. There are differences. And those differences shape us. They tell us how to live and they give us a standard by which to judge. If we fit into one community, if we belong to this group of nerds, then we feel at home, then we feel good, then we value the things that we do. Indeed, so often, isn't that exactly what it is? If it's not cultural or social, the way that we judge our actions is personal. That is, how do you feel about what you've done? The truth is, if you come to somebody and say, hey, that's a sin based on the Word of God, and they don't feel like it's a sin. Maybe you've had that. Maybe somebody's come to you and said, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. But it doesn't feel wrong at all. It's hard for you to accept. It's hard for you to internalize that truth. It's hard for you to go, yeah, okay. It's only those things, or it's more often those things that make us feel guilty, that make us feel shame, those things that really embarrass us, that make us feel in our gut like we've done something wrong. Because personally, we tend to judge right and wrong by how we feel. That's especially true in the society in which we live, where happiness and personal fulfillment are the greatest good. If it makes me feel happy, it's good. If it makes me feel bad, it's wrong. And maybe we don't do any of those. Those are all relational things. Maybe we take a more pragmatic approach. Maybe we say to ourselves, if it produces a positive outcome, it's good. How can it be bad if it did such good? Or if it produces a negative outcome, it must be bad. Because good things never produce bad effects, never produce bad results. So these are a number of ways in which we can judge. We all judge ourselves. We all have some form of judgment. We're doing it culturally, socially, personally, or practically. And there are others that we could include But there are lots of ways in which we judge what is right and wrong and decide what is sin and what is not. And there is a problem with each one of these. The problem is at least this, that these things change. That these standards, just like our society, growing up as a a young boy, bad language was not tolerated in public speech. Certainly, the homosexual or LGBTQ community was not a public community at all. You didn't boast of these things. You didn't announce them to the world. So in those days, it was perfectly fine to say that that was wrong. But now the morals have changed, the ethics have changed because the culture's changed. Which is only to say you never know if you're actually right or wrong. You end up getting canceled for something you said 20 years ago because now what you said 20 years ago might have been fine in that day, but it is not fine today. Think of all the statues that get pulled down and all of the people that are condemned because years ago, hundreds of years ago, they did the wrong thing. The standard constantly changes. And then what are you going to do if you're raised in the wrong situation? If you're born into the wrong home or born into the wrong part of the society? What if you're born into the poor part, into the ghetto part, of our community is it really fair to to say to that person who has learned that lying cheating and stealing is the way to go is it fair to say to that person but you're wrong you're bad because of all of these things 
If you, if you find that your problem is that you harm other people, then is the solution really punishing you? Is the solution telling you we're going to harm you as a society? Isn't it better that we should make people think about the bad that they've done so that they can change? Indeed, the problem, the problem uh, of, or what we perceive as the problem is really what determines the way that we see the solution of life. Where we see the problem is where we see the solution coming from. And none of this deals with the problem of our relationship with God. That is, none of this ultimately solves the greatest problem that we face, which is our eternal judgment against sin. We are so distracted by the things going on in our world and in our day that we never look up. So that our vision is always kept, our view of sin is always kept very horizontal. It's always relational between me and you. It's always beneficial or unbeneficial to my life. We're always so worried about offending people that we forget about whether we're offending God. That's what happens when we use these cultural, social, or personal standards to judge right and wrong. Ultimately, we don't understand the true problem that we are facing with, that we are faced with. A real problem which the catechism rightly describes as misery. Right? The question is asked, how do you come to know not your sin, though that is certainly true, but your misery? Because sin is misery. The closer you get to God, the more you realize that. The more you live in the light of Jesus Christ, the more you realize just how dark and dismal sin really is. But there are so many people, even in the church today, who do not see sin as misery. Who do not see that they are living in the sorrowful, burdensome reality of a broken world. And there's good reason for that. We are blind by nature. We are proud. We are unwilling to admit our need of help. We know that there's something wrong, but we don't want to know or admit the full extent of the problem. Which is why we need to be told. Which is why we need instructors to come into our lives to show us that our problem ultimately is us. We need to learn the truth of who we are by nature. We need God ultimately to open our eyes. We need God to teach us that Sin is not what society says. It's not what you feel. It's not what you think. It is rebellion against Him. It has cultural, social, personal, and practical consequences. But the primary issue is that it rejects God. It assaults Him. It refuses to bend the knee before Him. And until we see our attitudes, actions, and activities in relation to God, you'll never know your need of a Savior. And that's why God's law is so vital And so precious for the believer. Because in the law of God, God reveals the righteousness of who He is. He doesn't give us just a random set of tests to see if we can do it. But He says, here's who I am. Here's who I am. Compare yourself not to society, not to yourself, not to your friends. But compare yourself to Me. Let My Word show you how you line up with Me. And God, who reveals Himself in that law, will forever be be faithful to Himself. That is, He will never accept or embrace anyone 
that does not live in perfect righteousness, that is not perfectly obedient to this law. That is, only those who are completely consistent with God Himself are embraced by God. And what we discover then when we see the law of God speaking its word to us, when we stand in the light of God, then what is revealed to us is the truth of our own soul's darkness. And it's told to us so very clearly in these disturbing commands of which the law speaks. For if the law teaches our sinfulness and our misery, what does the law teach that so exposes the fact that we're miserable? What does the law teach that proves that we are such a people in such a deep pit of sin? Well, the Catechism gives to us Matthew 22 the verses 27, or 37 rather, to 40. And there the Lord speaks these words. Love love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you take the Ten Commandments, particularly, you can take any part of the law, but just settle on the Ten Commandments for now. You can see how each one of them either tell us how to love God or how they tell us to love each other. The first four especially tell us to love God And then the next six tell us to love each other. And there's good reason for why that is, because again, the law is a revelation of God. It tells us who God is. It's not a random series of tests. It's a revelation of who God is. And who is God fundamentally? God is love. God is a God who loves His Son, loves His Spirit, who is loved by His Son and His Spirit, who lives in perfect fellowship, has lived in eternal fellowship for all time. He is a God who is defined by that relationship, that relationship of love, which is a love that blesses and benefits, that provides for and rejoices in the other perfectly. And if God is a God of love, then it makes sense that the law, which is a revelation of God, should reveal to us love. That God has created image bearers and children, you and I, to live in a loving relationship with Him and with each other. Now, love there, of course, not being defined as a pleasant feeling of warmth, but as a commitment and a rejoicing in the other. So the law of God says you've got to love God. You've got to rejoice in Him. You've got to be committed to living for Him. And you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to be committed to them. You've got to bless them and rejoice in them. That's the standard by which you are to judge your own heart. Now, we don't always think, I think, of the law of God in this way. This is not the way that Christianity is certainly positioned in our culture. Christianity in our culture is presented as very narrow-minded, as oppressive and bigoted, as misogynistic. Christianity is seen as always condemning, never encouraging. And this is sometimes even how the Christian life is perceived by believers Because the devil knows what lies to tell us. I mean, just go back to the very beginning when the devil spoke to the woman. And what did he say to the woman except that God's withholding blessing from you. God's limiting you. God's cruel. God is not the kind of God that that loves. He's the kind of God that oppresses. You need to be free of God. And we believe that, I think, even to this day as Christians sometimes, as young people maybe, as we're growing up in the faith. And mom and dad are telling us, do this, don't do that. Here are the rules. Here's the regulations. 
You have to come to church. You have to do your devotions. You have to be kind. You have to live in a sacrificial way. We're being taught how to walk in the way of faith and of the Lord. And, and we can begin to internalize that in an inappropriate way. Or the devil, even our own flesh, can work against mom and dad, can work against our own hearts by telling us, see, see Christianity, it's just about rules and regulations. It's just about do this and don't do that. It's just about don't have fun. It's just don't enjoy life. Don't be yourself. That's what Christianity, Christianity prevents you from being yourself. It's just about do what you're told, obey, obey, obey. Even in the church, even in the church community, we can believe that that's what God's teaching us. Not because God's teaching us that. That's not at all. God has never taught us that, ever in ever. But the devil, in even our own flesh, twists and turns the message into our hearts and minds so that we believe that's what God wants. That He just wants us to have no fun. He wants us to follow the rules and to be bored. Sometimes we give this impression as Christians too. I mean, even in the church, we can argue about the most minute matters in a way that is not necessarily encouraging or beneficial. It can seem sometimes, even in the church, like we're trying to count the number of angels dancing on the head of a pin. And that can give people a sense that Christianity is really about regulations and getting your theology right and being doctrinally pure and little about loving God and your neighbor. And don't misunderstand this because there are obviously rules and requirements within the Christian life. Indeed, in relationships, there must be, aren't there? If we're in a relationship with somebody and we expect them to love us, if you're dating someone, let's say, and that boy or that girl says, oh, I love you. That's a wonderful thing to hear. That's an encouraging, and that says something about what's going on in their heart and in their mind and in their spirit. But Surely you expect then, if they say that, that there will come a concrete expression of that love in the way that they speak to you, in the way that they relate to you, in the way that they deal with you. You you can't say you love someone and then murder them or tell lies about them to your friends. You can't say you love someone and then be unfaithful to them or steal from them or do them harm in some way. If you love someone, then there are concrete, practical, regular rules and requirements that you must meet. Oh yes, to love someone requires rules. Yet you should never miss the heart of God's commands. Because the heart of God's commands are never, show me how many hoops you can jump through. Instead, the heart of God's commands have always been, love God and love your neighbor Be a blessing. Worship God and bless your neighbor. And it's important we recognize this, not only for our Christian living, but for the purpose for which the catechism has given us this word. Because the catechism says to us, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. You say, well, I guess I don't do good deeds, right? I don't always do exactly what I'm supposed to. I don't always keep the rules. I don't always... Follow the requirements. I guess I'm a sinner. I guess God is sitting there and He's like a driving instructor. How many of us, when we got our dri- when our driver's license had to go for our driver's license, we sat in the car and there came the instructor beside us. And oh, you get nervous, don't you? You see that clipboard, and every time there's a bit of a scratching on there, you think, oh, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? 
That's how we can treat God sometimes too. God's sitting there with this, and oh, you didn't get it perfectly right. You didn't get it quite exactly the way you should. But what is the thing that we didn't get right? What is the thing that we didn't do well? God says, you didn't love me. And you didn't love your neighbor as yourself. And that standard makes our failure as believers and as people, as human beings, so much worse. I mean, if God's only giving us silly rules, if He's giving us these tests to prove how good we are, then it's really His fault that we're sinners, not ours. But if God commands you, if He says to you, love your dad and mom, then your disobedience to them is not about breaking some silly rule. It's about hatred. It's about cruelty. It's about being angry with them. If God says, do this, and you say, I will not, that's not about some silly rule. That is about your heart and your relationship with God. Failing to love someone is a big deal. Failing to love God is a serious matter. You can tell yourself, I'm just not keeping these silly rules that the church invented. But the truth is, you're rejecting God. This makes our God a different God, of course, than the one presented to us by the devil and the world. The God who is cruel, the God who is heartless, the God who is only interested in collecting the interest on his investment, the God who sits with his clipboard and counts all your mistakes. That's not the God we worship. The God we worship is a God who loves, the God who created a relationship with us, who created us for relationship with him, and who commands that we love him. And maybe that's why the world doesn't want us to see that God, doesn't want to see us, doesn't want us to see God in the way that he's presented to us on the pages of Scripture doesn't want to see God, us to see God as He's presented in the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you can't see Jesus Christ and not see God's love. You can't see Jesus Christ and not see God's willingness to do everything to save His people. There is love. No greater love has a man than this than that He gives His life for His friends. Or this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation for all our sins. You can't see the cross of Calvary and not see the love of God. But if God is loving, then your rejection of Him is infinitely worse. It's so much easier to say God is cruel, God is a dictator, God is a petty tyrant, because then your disobedience is perfectly acceptable. But if God is who God says He is, then our sinfulness isn't a petty minor inconvenience. It's a rejection of the God who created us with love and who gives us a loving community to live in. And that's why when you truly listen carefully to the law of God, when you genuinely hear what God is saying to you, and who He's revealing Himself to be to you, that you come to the conclusion that the catechism does, when it says, can you live up to all this perfectly? You must necessarily say, no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Now note that perfection is definitely the demand. Can you live up to this perfectly, the question asks. Perfection's the demand because why should God change His demand? He created us to love Him perfectly. He created us to love each other perfectly. 
We decided we weren't going to do that. Why should God lower the bar? Why should God say, okay, I'll change the requirement. I won't hold you responsible for that. God is under no obligation to lower the bar of His righteousness for us. God's demand is that we love. And love is definitely not something that you do in degrees. You either love or you don't. And God says, can you love me perfectly? Can you serve me perfectly? Can you love your neighbor as yourself? Not just that neighbor that's kind to you. Not just that neighbor that does what you want them to. That neighbor that annoys you. That neighbor that does harm to you. That neighbor that rejects you. Can you love as I've loved you? Asks God to His people. And the truth is, out there, it's not hard to find. Look at the nation in which we live. Look at the culture, the society in which we live. See what man does by nature. He hates God. He says God is the reason this world is so messed up. Religion is the problem with, with society. It's not until we get rid of all of this that we'll finally be free. That we'll be able finally to love our neighbors. That's at least what our world says, right? Our world says we're going to love each other. We want a society that's free, that's free to love whoever you wish, to be whoever you are. Unless, of course, you are somebody we don't like. That we're going to cancel you and we're going to send you off on some island and we're going to reject you, we're going to put you in prison because you have violated the thought police. We want a society where the only people that exist are people that love us that love what we love. That's the society in which we live. It's not a very loving society. It's a very hateful society. Hates babies, kills them because they're inconvenient. Hates elderly and weak, kills them because of their inconvenience. Hates people with a different opinion because they have a different opinion. There is no shortage of evidence in our world that man by nature does not love God or his neighbor. But for a moment, take this light of the law and examine your own heart. Examine your own heart. And ask yourself, are you committed to living for God so perfectly, loving Him so deeply and profoundly that you will never countenance, never imagine rebelling against Him? That you would never do anything contrary to the will of God? Are you committed to loving God that way? What about your neighbor? Are you willing to do everything to ensure your neighbor's blessed? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He set the standard for us. Are you willing to love your neighbor as yourself? The truth is, we gossip, we slander, we cheat, we lie, even in the church. There have been those in the church who have said, I'd rather do business with people outside of the church because they're more honest and with greater integrity than the people that I do business with in the church who cheat and lie and scam and steal. The language of the church, the lifestyle of the church, even the world says, shouldn't you people have a higher standard of living? Shouldn't you people be better than we are? Why are we at the same parties as you? Why are we in the same places as you? Why are we surfing the same website as you? Now in the church even, we must admit that our hearts are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. Not that we're as bad as possible. Civility restrains us. Even selfishness restrains us. 
and the echo of our original condition restrains us. But the truth is there's a darkness inside all of us which if left to roam free would be terrible. Yes, even in the church. And this truth does more than just tell us that our actions are wrong. It exposes the deep truth of our depravity. For the problem with sin is not first of all that we do things wrong or that we don't do things right. No, the problem with sin is the problem of who we are. And the solution therefore cannot merely be teaching people to do better, to live more morally. The solution to the problem of sin is not public education. It's not providing instruction on how to parent. The problem of sin demands a solution so deep and so profound that it is described in Scripture as rebirth, regeneration, as a new man, a new person. Because we must be changed from the very depth of who we are in all aspects of our lives. And so even as Christians, we must embrace and make sense of the truth of this confession. Even we, even we as Christians, left to ourselves, apart from the Holy Spirit's presence and power, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, even we as Christians would be wicked, rebellious, and ruinous. If it weren't for the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be here. That we must admit. And not only that, we must admit that there is too often in our hearts a darkness towards God and our neighbor that we think is okay, that we embrace and accept. Think of the second table of the law which shows us something of what hate looks like. Murder, adultery, theft, and lying. And think of how often those things are expressed in our own hearts and lives. If love produces fruits of blessing, then hate produces fruits of destruction. And can we say we love our spouse while we're scrolling porn on our phone? Can we say we love our friends if we're gossiping about them? Is that what love does? Or is that what hate does? Tearing down, destroying, and ruining. The truth is we must all look into the mirror of God's law and shudder at what we see there. We may struggle to accept this deep truth and to admit it for ourselves, though it's easy to admit for everybody else. But we ought to do it precisely because we know the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ. You see, that's the starting point also of this Lord's Day, isn't it? Remember what it said in question and answer 2. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? It is for the joy of the comfort that the catechism wants us to know how great our sin and misery is. The catechism wants us to turn away from ourselves and turn only to Jesus Christ. And it wants to speak to us a word of hope and a word of life. It knows that you are fearful of admitting the truth. It knows that you don't want to acknowledge the depth of your need of Christ. And so it first holds out to you the glory of Christ and says the blessedness of belonging to Christ is greater even than admitting the truth of our own fallen condition. Don't forget when you are called to humble yourself as a Christian, Called, called to admit your sin and called to admit your need of grace. 
that you've already been given that grace. You've already been redeemed in Jesus Christ. So don't fear the humiliation of admitting this truth. Don't just recite these words. Make them true of your own self. Speak them to your heart. Say daily to yourself, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Precisely because you know that in Jesus Christ there is deliverance. Indeed, there is deliverance for all who acknowledge this truth. Though there is no deliverance for those who don't. For if you say, no, 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 that's not true of me. I'm not that bad. No, thank you. I don't need all this sin. I don't need all of this condemnation. I'm a pretty good person, thank you very much. Well, then you don't really need Jesus Christ either, do you? And you're not going to believe in Him. And then you are not redeemed. Ultimately, we must acknowledge and own this truth deep within our hearts. The law of God shows us. It says, don't you see that there is also in your heart such a wickedness that only God can redeem by the power of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we ought to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. My only comfort in life and in death is not that I'm a good person, but it's that I belong, both body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the gift of life and for the gift of life in Jesus Christ, a life that has delivered us from the depths of sin, a depth that we, want to hesi- we hesitate rather to accept and to acknowledge. Help us, Heavenly God and Father, to acknowledge it. Help us to say with great truth and conviction, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Every time we hear Your law, help us to hear the call to love and help us to be reminded of how little love we have so that we might turn to the law, to the lawgiver, to Jesus Christ, and in His sacrifice find life and life in abundance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.